You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. We are in part three of our three-part series, God, Government, and the Gospel. And uh, before <laughs> uh, coming here, I actually was planning on wearing like a green shirt. Then I thought to myself, is he signaling he's part of the green party? Then I'm like, I wear my red shirt. And I couldn't do that for obvious reasons. How about the blue shirt? So this is like the most neutral clothing I could find where I can't, you know, convey any political preference. So maybe this does represent something I don't know. If it does, uh, by no means am I trying to sway you to my political persuasion. Do you want to know who might have a, a stronger a political opinion than you? It's probably me. Would you like to know who needs God's word to guide and govern his heart during an election cycle? It's me. Do you know, do you want to know who needs, to, needs a heart check before going into the voting booth on Tuesday because I haven't voted yet? It's me. Whether it's this election cycle or the next, if you resonate with me, I want to invite you to hear from God about what it means to, yes, be political, right? Voting is a political act but what it means to be a Christian in a broken world. Because the 2020 general election is the most important election until 2024. And I believe I can say with a degree of certainty and confidence that everyone here needs help to kind of cut through the political noise, and we need to hear from God. Like, just give you the example, like, this is the Constitution of the United States. I rarely use props. I can't remember the last time I ever did. This is the Constitution of the United States, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. You know what? I really like this document. I can say that with a surety. This is a good thing. You know what? This is fallible. This document, as good as it might be, is fallible. This thing right here, this document is infallible. So when it comes to thinking well about God, government, and the gospel, it's this book right here. This is good, but fallible, but this book, yes. We get our nose into this and we see what God says as we look out into the world and try to navigate and cut through the political noise. So I'm going to pray briefly one more time just because I, you know, frankly, I just need God's help. And then we're going to dive into 1 Peter chapter 2. So God, I come to you needing help from the Spirit to preach the word. And we want your word, the infallible and errant 
word of God, your revealed word to meet us in our mind, in our heart, and to inform us how we view the world, how we view government, how we view politics, how we understand how to think about uh, voting. We want to be informed by you, and we need your help. So we come as needy beggars once again, needing you to reveal more of Christ to our hearts and showing us what you say in your word. Amen. I want to begin with a question. Could you be a Christian if you lived, if you did not live in a constitutional republic? A constitutional republic is a the governmental structure laid out in the United States Constitution. Our Constitution is what gives religious institutions protection to worship, for example. Could you be a Christian if that type of government did not exist in your world? Could you be a Christian under Nazi Germany or under the rule of Chinese communism, where the only official recognized church is the state church? Can you unhitch your faith from the politics of culture. Under multiple philosophies of government, uh, Christians are persecuted. Christians are identified because their allegiance to King Jesus instead of the earthly king. Without a doubt, Christians in America have experienced something unique since its official founding in 1776. It's been unique. What an experiment it has been. Christians and religious people of all kinds of shapes, sizes, and stripes have the freedom to exercise faith without tyranny from the government. Of course, religious liberty is always being challenged in this country, but comparatively, people of faith in America have been free to worship. I think that's just a simple stated fact. I think this is great. Religious liberty is one of the considerations I make when going into a voting booth and thinking about political candidates. I want to see religious freedom protected in our country. However... Because of religious liberty, I do think American Christians have lost their sense of home. Here's what I mean by home. American Christians can be more concerned about the advancement of the kingdom of their political party than the kingdom of God. American Christians can be more concerned about the kingdom of America instead of the kingdom of heaven. American Christians can be more enamored with being a citizen of the U.S. than enamored with their eternal home, heaven. I am of the opinion that some, if not many Christians, need to readjust how they understand their citizenship on earth in light of being a citizen of heaven. Christians can spend more time talking about Donald Trump than Jesus. Christians spend more time talking about Joe Biden than Jesus. 
What is happening is that our citizenship on this earth and in this country is informing how we view the world and not the other way around. And you know what? I'm guilty of falling for that. I freely admit that I need to readjust my own thinking. We need to allow our heavenly citizenship to inform how we view the world, how we view politics in America. Here's an example of my concern. Many of you have an an American passport. When you were saved by God, you were given a second passport, a, a, let's just call it a heavenly passport. And now, you think you have dual citizenship. You use your American passport when it's warranted. You use your heavenly passport on Sunday. And I think God says to you and me, there is no dual citizenship. You need to give up your American passport. In 1 Peter 2, God helps us to understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven while on earth. 1 Peter 2 helps us to set the boundaries between these two worlds. This passage grounds us in the reality that our time here matters. Yes, it does matter, but it is not eternal. It is not eternal. Our time on earth is distinct from our time in the new heavens and the new earth. While we are on earth, we cling to our heavenly passport, looking forward to the day where we're kind of like in that customs line and we're using it and we're going to be with Jesus. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of church history, wrote about the distinction between earth and heaven. He saw it clearly when he wrote his book entitled City of God, when he compared the earthly city with the city of heaven. Here's what he said, just one short sentence. The earthly city glorifies itself. The heavenly city glorifies the Lord. Yes, Christians are to reflect the heavenly city while we are on earth, But until the heavenly city is fully realized, Christians do live in a world that is constantly glorifying itself. Christians live in a world more concerned with worldly matters. Christians occupy what Augustine calls this middle ground. Augustine also said this in a sermon. God's people occupy the middle ground. They are To be compared neither with those who think that the only good is to enjoy earthly delights, nor with those sublime inhabitants of heaven whose sole delight is in the heavenly bread which they are created. Between the people of heaven and those on earth, the apostle, he's talking about the apostle John when he was writing the book of Revelation, the apostle was suspended in the middle, headed toward heaven, though he was not there yet but at the same time separated from others here below. So we, Christians, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, are 
what Peter calls sojourners and exiles. We are living in a place that is ultimately not our home. We are exiles longing for a home that involves seeing the damage done in the garden to be renewed and restored. Our future home informs how we live in our present and temporary home. Everything I'm going to say about what it means to live on earth and in America must be couched in this idea that we are sojourners and exiles. That's kind of the context. That was verse 11. And even in the first verse of 1 Peter, first verse of 1 Peter, what does Peter say you are? He says you are elect exiles. So let me ask you this question as, as direct as possible. May, may this may perhaps test your heart. What do you identify with more? Do you identify more as an American citizen or as a heavenly citizen who is an elect exile in America? Listen, I'm, I'm asking the question, and I've said this before, like 4th of July, we're all wearing the red, right, white, and blue. I say this as a man who enjoys America and sees the blessings of America. But everything must be held in a biblical perspective. As a, as a heavenly citizen, God calls Christians to live in a manner that reflects the true and lasting citizenship of heaven. Here is how our heavenly citizenship relates to our politics. On this earth, we live under a governmental structure. From one generation to the next, from one civilization to the next, government structures exist and they are different. Over time, governmental structures change. But the point remains that Christians are always living within the context of government and the authority in which government wields. God's word says in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors, so the emperor and everyone else under him whom he appoints. Part of the reason why God calls Christians to be subject to human institutions is because our Christian witness can show us to be distinct from the world. The way we respond to earthly authorities could cause some in the world to ask, if you're not worried about earthly authority or government, then what worries you? Could you imagine the impact Christians could have on a world by not worrying about the outcome of an election? Could you imagine the impact Christians could have on a culture if we pursued good regardless of like the state governor? Whether it's got an R or D at the end of the name. Here's the deal. When we do good to those 
around us, others take notice. When Christians do good, the ignorant and the foolish do not have an accusation to levy against you. Doubters are put to silence, verse 14. When Christians do good to others, regardless of who is president, others will wonder what keeps you at peace while the world burns down all around you. That's the kind of rhetoric that gets thrown around these days. Doing good to others is a testimony, regardless of what is going on around us. It is a testimony of the work of Christ being done in your life. Perhaps here's a subtle and simple example of what it looks like to do good in a world filled with fear and anxiety. My wife and I are on a massive texting thread with my extended family. Uh, I think today, if we just go back and count, there's probably... 60 text message exchanges. Like, I can't keep up. This thread is used to talk about sports, Minnesota Vikings, primarily, politics, and religion. And let's just say savory and unsavory statements, gifts, and means are shared. To be frank, this thread might be the most opinionated thread in all of America. We got people with strong personalities. Well, I think Sharice and I have used this thread at times to speak with kindness and to do good. One example of this is the day Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. The day she died, Sharice wrote something to this effect. While I disagree with her perspectives and rulings on the Supreme Court, I respect her strength and courage. It was a gracious statement honoring a person who is made in God's image. What Sharice demonstrated in that text comment to a bunch of people we love but who profoundly disagree with us about politics and faith is what we read in verse 12. It says this, in 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If Biden is elected, will you honor the Gentiles by by doing good? If Trump is elected, will you honor the Gentiles by doing good? Your heavenly citizenship to inform the good that you do to others. For Christians living of government, regardless of what party is in control, The Christian lives freely. Like your freedom does not change on November 4th. A Christian is free to do good. Here's the paradox of the Christian faith communicated in verse 16. 
when you are a servant of God, you are free and you are free to do good. Your external circumstances certainly do not dictate your freedom. Conversely, you, you could have all the political freedom in the world while at the same time being a slave. How is this possible? Because what enslaves a person more than anything is not a dictator, a monarch, or a president. It's the passions of the flesh, verse 11. Peter writes this letter to a bunch of people undergoing political persecution. Try to wrap your mind around that. He's writing this to people who are being persecuted. People are dying. Politics is in play. Emperor Nero was an evil man who wanted Christians dead. But Peter doesn't tell Christians to rise up and start a revolution. That's not what he says. That's not what he's going for. Peter does not tell them their freedom will be accomplished once Nero is overthrown. No. Freedom is found in abstaining from passions of the flesh, which causes sin. And the way to fight the passions of the flesh and to be free begins and ends with faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Think about that. No government is going to make you free. No political party will make you free. Jesus Christ makes you free. Faith that Jesus has canceled your debt of sin is more freeing than being released from a communist jail for being a Christian. Faith that you are able to continue to fight the passions of the flesh frees you from slavery from the passions of the flesh. Like, do you hear what Peter is saying? Christians must be more concerned with fighting against sin than fighting against a political party or ideology. Some Christians... Let's just, let's just shoot it to you straight. Some Christians are more concerned about what is going on in the presidential election than having a healthy marriage. Some Christians are more concerned about the Senate race than fighting their porn addiction. Some Christian parents are more concerned with state politics than teaching their children in the ways of the Lord. You know, from time to time, I think Christians must recalibrate or rethink what truly matters. Sometimes we just got to step back and be like, okay, life is busy, things go fast, we're constantly moving, going from one activity to the next. Sometimes you just got to step back and be like, okay, things got out of whack. Time to recalibrate, refocus, rethink. What are the priorities here? What I am not saying is that Christians should not be political. That is not what I am saying. Under our constitutional republic, again, which I think is one of the most brilliant government structures in human history, I believe it's important for Christians to be politically engaged. But Christians must prioritize their relationship with Jesus above all else. It is Jesus whom we look to. 
Christians must prioritize their heavenly citizenship over their American citizenship. So Christians are called by God as citizens of heaven to live in a world where God providentially places in people who rule over citizens. The government is to do good and to execute justice on evil. That's what we read in 1 Peter 2. Likewise, Christians are also to do good so that you know, they won't be accused of evil doing, so that they can be a good testimony to Jesus Christ. Christians are to do good as a testimony to the one who has shown ultimate goodness through the salvation of souls. All of this is helpful context for what we read in verse 17. Verse 17 is the summary statement that we can apply immediately to our lives. And I'm going to spend the remainder of my time looking at this one verse. We read in Holy Scripture, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor, fear, and love. We've already seen that it says in verse 12, Christians are to keep their conduct toward the Gentiles honorable. In verse 17, the same idea is just reinforced. It's the same Greek word. And then the emperor is singled out as a person who is deserving of Christian honor. Again, in Peter's context, the Christian murderer, Nero, is the emperor. What does it mean to honor? God calls Christians to show everyone a degree of value. Because everyone is made in the image of God, everyone has dignity, value, and deserves honor. What does it mean to honor someone you profoundly disagree with, right? Well, that is a challenge in our political climate, is it not? My observation of Christians during this election cycle is that honoring Joe Biden is difficult. Honoring Donald Trump is difficult. Democrats and never-Trumpers loathe the sight of a picture of Donald Trump. Republicans and those who think our constitutional republic is being destroyed by liberals want to see Biden, do not want to see Biden take the presidential oath on January 20th, 2021. As a result, the animosity and the fear is, results in mudslinging, and it's just nonstop. Everyone is arguing. No one truly debates during a presidential debate. Listen, if an objective person were to come in and observe the political climate, he would conclude that the ethos of the U.S. right of the United States right now could be summed up with one word, hatred. You see it on social media. You see it on the news. Just hate all around. How does honoring take place when hatred fills the heart? And you know what? Hatred exists in conservatives and liberals and Democrats, and Republicans. Christians are called by God to act differently. 
We are called by God to honor everyone and the emperor, and especially when we disagree on politics or with a political candidate. Here's an example of what it could look like to honor someone you disagree with. Let's take it out of the political arena and just normal everyday life, work. You have a boss at work who makes company decisions that you think are short-sighted or wrong, perhaps even unethical. His or her decisions affect your daily life. And actually, that, that person's decisions makes your job a lot harder. You become frustrated. How do you honor your boss while maintaining disagreements? I've been in this position before, so this rings true to me. Here's what I've done in the past when I, before I got into pastoral ministry and I was working for a company. I began to pray for my boss. She was frustrating me so much. I wasn't honoring her, but I began to pray. I felt conviction by the Lord that that's what I should do. And here's what I discovered. My heart became soft. Perhaps the needle in my heart moved from like this profound disagreement, and it indeed did, to gospel opportunity. So instead of complaining about my boss, it stopped. I was doing that, and then I stopped. Or complaining with the political candidate you disagree with, which does cultivate hatred. You want to cultivate hatred in your heart? Just go complain, complain, complain. Pray. Pray for him or her. Have an attitude and actions different from this very divisive world. If you debate politics around the Thanksgiving table, perhaps you don't. You know, I grew up where that is what we talk about. But if, if that's you, if you're like my family, remember to honor people that you are with by showing them respect, attributing to them dignity and value as fellow image bearers of God. So we want to honor everyone, and then the emperor is singled out. Honor. Fear. Peter mentions fear. In particular, we are to fear God. Notice, it does not say you are to fear the emperor. I think this is an, an important observation and, distinct, and distinction for Christians to recognize right here. In the first century, you would think Christians would fear Nero, right? That seems to make some logical sense. He's murdering Christians. I'm a Christian. I fear Nero, right? But that's not what Peter says. He said to honor the emperor. You fear God. Peter would not have it. Honor Nero even if he's persecuting Christians. And you fear God and God alone. A study of the fear of God in the Bible is endless. I don't know if you've ever done this before. Just look at all the times where the fear of the Lord or the fear of God is mentioned. I would be up here all day just quoting scripture about how we are to fear God and God alone. But I'll just mention one passage from the Gospel of Matthew. It says this in Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear them. Don't fear Nero. He can't kill your soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is who you fear. 
here is MV, Sean Powers' modern version of the Bible on this verse. Do not fear the one who raises or lowers your taxes. Do not fear the one who affects your health insurance for better or worse. Do not fear the one who wants to increase or decrease the size of government. Do not fear the one who supports abortion or the one who affirms that life begins at conception. You are to only fear God, period. That's it, no one else. No one else. And here's the deal. Not fearing the emperor does not mean you support the emperor or the decisions that the emperor makes. Not fearing the emperor does not mean you can't actively try to change the mind of the emperor. Fearing God and not the emperor is an acknowledgement of who is sovereign over presidents, prime ministers, and kings. Further, God is sovereign over the soul. And you know what? The emperor, the president, cannot touch your soul. Therefore, you have no reason to fear the emperor. None. On November 4th, if that's the day after the election, in theory, on November 4th, if you have a healthy and reverential fear of God alone, you will be at peace with the world and this country no matter who is elected president. You might not like the choice, but you can be at peace. You can be at peace. Honor, fear God alone, and now love. It's a third verb used to describe a Christian's attitude and actions while living in um, subjection to government. In particular, Christians are, are called to love the brotherhood. That's what it says in the ESV. Another translation of this phrase says, the love of the community of believers, which Ryan used earlier. I like that. Here's what I do not want to see in this church come November 4th. This is, this, is, this is when love doesn't hold sway and fear rules. I was a pastor in the Twin Cities during the last election cycle, right? 2016. Some of you were with me at that church. As is the case right now, the previous presidential election was contentious. People in the same church held a diversity of opinions, and opinions were verbalized. After the election, I know for a fact church members would not come to church because they felt bullied by people with different political opinions. Love did not abound in the heart of some, but there was fear-mongering. Admittedly, Sharice and I learned a lot about what it means to love the community of believers after that 2016 election. We made personal changes in how we engage politics in the church. Never again were we going to allow politics to be a dividing line between us and other brothers and sisters in Christ. Never again. Never. The point is that you, that 
It's not like you can't have political opinions as a Christian. I have plenty of opinions. Many of you have engaged me in conversations around politics, and I have opinions. I do. You can have them as well. It seems like since the moment I was born, I was listening or watching to MSNBC, CNN, NPR. That's just my context. To be brutally honest, this election cycle has refined what I believe about government and other, and other ideas about politics. This cycle has been really transformative for me. I have opinions, but here's the deal. If you vote or voted for Joe Biden, you are welcome into my home. If you vote or voted for Donald Trump, you are welcome into my home. If you vote or voted for another candidate, you are welcome into my home. If you do not vote, you are welcome into my home. You are welcome into my home, or hopefully you will experience Discussion, but more importantly in the discussion, charity and love. We want that to hold sway. Want to talk about politics? Sure. Let's go. But politics will not divide us. Love must abound among the community of believers. Love will keep us united even when we disagree on the size of government or whatever else have you. Here's what I hope for, for our church on November 4th. I hope nothing changes in this sense. I want us to focus on what is eternal while we're living in this temporal world. I want us to love the lost, the lost Democrat or the lost Republican. I want us to stand united in our love for Jesus and our love for one another. You know, I thank God it isn't politics that unites the church because if that was the case, it would have been divided in a heartbeat. I thank God we here are united because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who keeps us together. I may have said something that you disagree with in this sermon, and that's okay. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do know this whether we agree or disagree, Jesus unites us. That is more powerful than any political position or political candidate. So if you choose to go to the polls, which I do think is a privilege, you go with the knowledge that you have, like have your Bible in your right hand, in your biblically informed conscience, in your left hand, and just ask the Holy Spirit for help. And then you know what? You come back to church next Sunday where we can worship without being judged. You can come back to church next Sunday when we will sing about what is lasting and eternal. We will sing about 
King Jesus and we will sing to King Jesus. We will open up God's word to see how us Christians who are sojourners and exiles navigate this broken world. You will come back. You can come back next Sunday and we'll talk more about what it means to be on God's mission, what it means to advance God's kingdom. In addition, you can come back next Sunday and we'll take a, another long look toward the day and our Lord will come back. And you know what? You won't be thinking about the words Democrat or Republican. When Jesus comes back, he will gather his bride, the true church. And we will experience ultimate joy and peace with our Savior, King Jesus. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.